Please turn with me to Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. It's in your bulletin, or you can see it in context on page 925 of the Bible in your row. Today, we look at what I believe is the most wonderful slice of Paul's letter to the Colossians. He's going to remind us again of what Christ has done for us, and then he's going to give us some specifics about how to live in light of that. There's a theological saying, the indicatives empower the imperatives. What that means is Paul is telling us what is true, and then he's telling us what to do. What is true and what to do. What is true of those in Christ and what to do as a result of being connected to his power. The indicatives empower the imperatives. So, here now, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, which is God's word, eternally true. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Please pray with me. Now, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law and grow in us thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold what's sown here today. Amen. Actually, she is my favorite patient. Some years ago, an article by Dr. Paul Ruskin was published regarding the stages of aging. In his paper, the doctor presented this case study to his medical school students. The patient neither speaks nor comprehends the spoken word. Sometimes she babbles incoherently for hours on end. She is disoriented about person, place, and time. She does, however, respond to her name. 
I have worked with her for the past six months, but she still shows complete disregard for her physical appearance and makes no effort to assist her own care. She must be fed, bathed, and clothed by others. Continuing to describe the patient, Dr. Ruskin says, She has no teeth, so her food must be pureed. Her clothes are usually soiled from almost incessant drooling. She does not walk. Her sleep pattern is erratic. Often she wakes in the middle of the night and her screaming awakens others. Most of the time she is friendly and happy, but several times a day she gets quite agitated without apparent cause. Then she waits until someone comes to comfort her. After presenting the class with this challenging case, Dr. Ruskin asked his students if any of them would like to volunteer to take care of this person. Not one person raised their hand. Then Dr. Ruskin said, I'm surprised that none of you offered to help because actually she is my favorite patient. I get immense pleasure from taking care of her and I am learning so much from her. Then Dr. Ruskin said, let me show you her picture. He put her photo on the screen, his six-month-old baby daughter. (laughs) You laugh, but you know, you'll put up with a lot for someone you know is growing. If you know someone is growing, you'll put up with and take care of them and you'll find joy in it. Of course, the problem is that we're often not patient with ourselves and not patient with others as they're growing spiritually. So here, Paul in this passage is helping the Colossian church and helping us with spiritual growth. He's helping us to learn how to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, the title of our series on Colossians. Paul has prayed for them. He has shown them Christ. He has told them how to walk. He has told them how to stay on the right path. He's encouraged them to hold fast to the head who is Christ. And today, Paul's going to remind them and us that in order to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, you must remember what is true and what to do. And he lays it out nicely in three parts in this passage, uh, beginning with what is true, what to put to death, and what to put on. What's true, what to put to death, and what to put on. So beginning in verses 1 through 4, Paul indicates what is true about Christians. But he qualifies all those things that are true with an if. He's going to tell us that things are true and then say, well, if they are true, then here's what should follow. Now, I want you to hold on to that if because it'll be important near the end. There are three things here that Paul says are true about Christians with Christ. First, they are resurrected, literally co-raised with Christ. Second, they are hidden with Christ. Third, they are revealed with Christ. And as a result, Christians should seek things that are above and not only seek them, but set their minds on them. So there is some of that what-to-do language uh, in verses 1 and 2, right? Seek and set your mind. But we're going to concentrate first on the three things that are true. Now, I know a man in the Air Force who was given a status, mission, and promise. He was given the status of captain. It was conferred on him by his superiors. He was given a mission to be the officer in charge of a remote location in Turkey for one year. The only catch was he couldn't bring his wife with him to this location. 
but he was also given a promise. If he used his status and did his mission, then at the end of the year, he was promised that the Air Force would pay for an advanced degree for him, and that would help propel his career forward. Status, mission, promise. That's in an earthly realm. But let's look at the same idea of status, mission, and promise from a heavenly realm. Christ was raised to give us a new status. Christ is seated to empower a new mission. Christ will be revealed, and that gives us a new promise. He was raised, it says in verse 1, and that was for our justification. That's how Paul puts it in another letter, the one to the church in Rome. He says in Romans 4.25, Christ was raised for our justification. That gives Christians a new status. Jesus rose so that he could apply his work to us. Here's how the great theologian Jonathan Edwards put it. That is, delivered for our offenses and raised again that he might see to the application of his sufferings for our justification and that he might plead them for our justifying. In other words, Christians are justified in Christ, just as if I'd never sinned. Justification is a new status, a status where sins are not counted against you in Christ. Also in verse 1, Christ was seated at the right hand of the Father for our sanctification. Christians affirm Christ's session in the words of the Apostles' Creed. And this passage is one place in the Bible where that idea comes from, Christ seated at the right hand of God. Because Christ is set apart after completing his mission for them, Christians are called to engage in the mission of being set apart like him. Now, we'll get more specific about that in a minute, but I wanted you to see that seeking and setting your mind in verse 1 are the mission connected to the sitting down of Christ. So, justification is a Christian's status. Sanctification is a Christian's mission. Christ will be revealed for our glorification in verse 4. That is a Christian's promise. It's one thing to give someone a status and a mission. It's a whole other level to give someone a promise that the mission will be successful and end in glory no matter what. What would you do if you knew you could not fail? If you knew you could not fall off a tightrope, would you have the courage to cross Niagara Falls on one? If we in this room knew that bullets couldn't stop us, would we run together into a military battle in order to win? You see, in verse 3, it's saying that just as Christ is now hidden from plain view, a Christian's life is hidden in Christ. But when Christ comes again and is revealed in glory, so Christians will also be revealed and glorified. So, justification is a status in Christ because of his resurrection Sanctification is a mission in Christ because of his session. Glorification is a promise in Christ because of his second coming. Those are all the things that are true about Christians in verses 1 through 4. Christians have a status, mission, and promise in Christ. They are called to seek out and set their mind then on the implications of that. So all of that, verses 1 through 4, are what is true. Now, What do we do? Paul's going to tell us what to do. It's split up into two ideas. The first is put to death. 
And the second is put on like clothes. So uh, beginning in verses 5 through 11, he deals first with what to put to death. And he names four things right off the bat there in verse 5. And they all have a connection to sex. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire. These things were to put to death. First, the Greek word porneia is where we get our English word pornography, which is sexual immorality, that first thing listed. Then impurity, which has similar sexual overtones. And then passion. You say, wait a minute, is passion so bad? Now think about how we use this word. It has a broad range of meaning. We talk about passion that can drive you or passion that can destroy you. Someone can have a passion for a good cause, or we say you can burn with passion for someone who is not your spouse. Paul doesn't mean all passion here. He means the bad kind. And that's the same with desire. He puts the qualifier on it, evil. Desire isn't bad. If you're looking for a religion that says that desire is bad in and of itself, that's Buddhism, where the goal is to rid oneself of all desire. But in putting the qualifier evil on desire, Paul is admitting that there are also good desires, just like there can be good passion. But if you've been co-raised with Christ and you have a new status, mission, and promise, it is imperative that you put to death these sexual sins. But it's not just sexual vices, Paul is saying, that Christians need to put to death. The next thing Paul calls out is greed, which is idolatry. Now, actually, our version says covetousness, but since no one that I know really uses that word, I thought we'd just say what it means, which is greed. Greed is idolatry. And Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. And this would be an easy phrase to pass over in a long list of vices like this. But you know that two weeks ago, I read a 200-page book on just this one phrase. And the title of the book was Greed is Idolatry. Uh, the beginning of a Pauline metaphor by a guy named Brian Rosner. So let me summarize it for you briefly. To have a strong desire to acquire and keep for yourself more and more money and material things is an attack on God's exclusive rights to human love and devotion, trust and confidence, service and obedience. One more time, Rosner says, to have a strong desire to acquire and keep for yourself more and more money and material things is an attack on God's exclusive rights to human love and devotion, trust and confidence, service and obedience. Do you remember the story of the goose who laid the golden eggs? What happened to the man who owned that goose? After a while, he got so greedy for the golden eggs, he decided to cut open the goose so he could get more of them faster. Of course, then the goose was dead. The eggs are whatever it is you're acquiring for yourself. The goose you cut open is your relationship to the one true God. There are many little gods we are tempted to worship. Again, from Rosner's book, he says, A God is that which one trusts, loves, and obeys above all else. A God is that which one trusts, loves, and obeys above all else. Greed causes you to trust something other than the one true God. And verse 6 says that disobedience to the one true God brings his wrath. The way to put false worship of greed to death 
is actually to be generous, to give things away. You know, everyone has heard the phrase, it's more blessed to give than receive. Few people uh, or many people don't know that it's Jesus who actually said that. Uh, It's more blessed to give than receive, which could also be translated, it's more blessed to give than it is to grasp. It's more blessed to give than it is to grasp. What golden eggs in your life do you need to loosen your grip on in order to put to death the false worship of greed? Then Paul continues his vice list in verse 8. Put to death anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Now, in lists like this in the Bible, we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to overgeneralize the list, uh, also not to get overly specific in the list in looking for meaning. So above, greed, which is idolatry, is a more specific place, a more specific uh, place to look for meaning and application. But here, anger, wrath, malice are all operating in the same broad category of evil against another person, the results of which are words against another person, blasphemous and shameful talk. Now, Paul knew all about this because it's what false teachers were always doing to him. He would go somewhere with the good news of the gospel, and then false teachers would come in and not only use their words to try and discredit his ideas, but they would also tear apart his character with their words. Now, people on opposite sides of an issue are always tempted to this. And I think that's why we see these opposite poles listed in verse 11. Greeks and Jews. They could tear each other apart with their words. Likewise, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. What poles do you inhabit where you're tempted to tear down the other pole with shameful words? Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, Yankee, Southerner, etc., etc. Identify the poles in your life and you'll identify the danger zones for your mouth. Of course, the ultimate ultimate danger zone of the mouth is lying, which is what Paul points out in verse 9. Do not lie to each other. So what does it mean to put these things to death? The old word for it was mortification. Mortify the flesh, put it to death. And Paul describes mortification with two pictures. The first is walking. In verse 7, he says, these are the ways you used to walk in. Mortification involves walking a new path. And then in verses 9 and 10, he uses the picture of renewal. Now look, I rarely talk about snakes positively, so pay attention to this one. A snake sheds its skin to allow for further growth and to remove parasites that may be attached to the old skin. The new skin is growing underneath the old so that the snake has to put off the old skin in order to be renewed with that new skin that is more in the image of what the snake really is. As scared as I am of snakes, I need this renewal. The renewal that sheds the old skin of sexual immorality, that sheds the old skin of anger, that sheds the old skin that leads to shameful words and to put off that old man so that I may put on the new and be renewed in God's image. So now we need to look at this renewal that we're to put on more closely. As I said, the old word for putting to death was mortification. 
The old word for putting on was vivification or bringing to life. There's a saying, the clothes make the man, which is to say that if you're wearing the right clothes, it just brings you to life in the midst of a situation. In verses 12 through 17, we're going to put on the clothes that make the man and woman who are already clothed in Christ. Verse 10 said, put on the new man. Verse 12 says, put on then, and it gives a list. And here's the list. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. But before it tells you what to do, Paul emphasizes one more time what is true. Look at it there in verse 12. Put on then as chosen, holy, and beloved. That is really important. He's using a different set of words to talk about that status, mission, and promise yet again. Christ was chosen in order to justify sinners. You are chosen in him to be justified. Christ was set apart to complete this mission, and now you are set apart as well. That's what holy means, set apart. He was revealed as God's beloved son, and you will be revealed as beloved sons in Christ when he appears. Chosen, holy, beloved, justified, sanctified, glorified. We must keep coming back to what is true in order to put on the, and do the, uh, the, the next right thing, the what to do. What is true always empowers what to do. So put on literally the guts of compassion. If Christ has given you any guts He's given you the guts to show compassion to others. Do you have the guts to show compassion? That's not how we modern people tend to use this phrase, is it? And this certainly puts a different spin on it for us to consider. We usually say, do you have the guts to stand up for yourself? Do you have the guts to take what is yours? But do you have the guts to show the compassion of Christ to others. And then he says, put on kindness, which is another word that I'm tempted to overlook. Do you know what kindness is? All you have to do is a, a little word study and look at how this word is used elsewhere in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4, it says that love is kind. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 30, Jesus says that his yoke is is this same word. We usually translate it, his yoke is easy. But this is, if you're yoked to Jesus, you're connected to his kindness. Luke 6, 35 reminds us that God is kind, not just to the righteous, but he's kind to the ungrateful because in his kindness, rain falls on their field too. Kindness is also one of the fruits of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5.22. Moises Silva, in commenting on it, says that kindness is the unmistakable and essential characteristic of love, the chief manifestation of the Spirit's work. Kindness is the unmistakable and essential characteristic of love, the chief manifestation of the Spirit's work. Do you know what it takes to be kind? Humility meekness, and patience. The next thing's listed there. Humility, being willing to take the lower place. Meekness, which is not mousiness. Meekness is veiling your strength. 
and patience, waiting a long time for the desired result to come. And that's why verse 13 gives us the concrete example of bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint, granting grace, forgiving them. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, thus are you to be. And above all these things, put on love, which is literally in verse 14, the ligament of completeness. Do you remember earlier in the letter when Paul said, hold fast to the head where the whole body is nourished and the ligaments are growing? What is the ligament binding Christ's body together? Love. But how will we bear with one another? Verse 15 says to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. In other words, uh, like playing baseball, someone has to make the call. You know, in baseball, the person who makes the call is the umpire. They make the call of safe or out, ball or strike. The peace of Christ is to be the umpire that makes the call between believers. Uh, It's not the false peace of the world. It's not a peace that lies about the truth of a situation. And it's not a peace at any price that just tries to keep the waters quiet. But the peace of Christ tells the truth with kindness, love, and compassion. Now, if you want to study how to do this further, I cannot highly recommend enough David Pallison's book, Good and Angry. David Pallison wrote Good and Angry. It's, it's a red cover. It's, amazing. it's just an amazing book. I've read it several times, have underlines in it. I commend it to you. He talks about the constructive displeasure of mercy. The constructive displeasure of mercy. Uh, it's something, the way he says it is, uh, the constructive displeasure of mercy says, that's wrong, and I will be constructively merciful in pursuing whatever is just, whatever makes things right, whatever is good. What if we lived like that? What could it look like? Paul's trying to paint some kind of picture of that in verses 16 and 17. How do we put these things on? Well, first, we have to have the word dwelling in us richly with all wisdom. You have to have it, and also you have to know how to use it, which is why I think then basically he says, sing it. Sing it to each other, because in so doing, it will get down deep into your heart. And if you're not a singer, you're not let off the hook here. Uh, He says, then do the word. In fact, to all of us, he says, whatever you do in word and work, do it in the name of Jesus. Work it down into your heart. But most importantly, there's a threefold encouragement to gratitude or thanksgiving. First, in verse 15, literally become thankful. Then in verse 16, with grace or thankfulness is how we should be singing. And finally, in verse 17, when you're speaking or working in Jesus' name, give thanks to God through him. Gratitude to God for the status, mission, and promise he's given you, though none of us deserves it, that he's given you in Christ moves us. Gratitude moves us to put to death our vices and to put on our virtues because we know what is true about ourselves. Now, do you remember the if from the beginning of the passage? If you have been co-raised with Christ, here's the moment where it's important. Many people look at Christians and think, you know, if you're a Christian and that stuff is all true, 
then you ought to be a more moral person than you actually are. And then if a Christian's life doesn't align perfectly to a certain morality, then they might think that uh, we can assume that Christianity must not be true. Of course, this is faulty logic. This isn't what Paul is saying at all. What he does say is that if one is a Christian, then two things ought to be happening. First, there is mortification, an ongoing putting to death of one's vices. Second, there is vivification, an ongoing putting on of virtues. You see, he does not say that immediately when one becomes a Christian, all their vices disappear and all these virtues magically appear. He says that becoming a Christian moves you into a lifelong struggle to kill vices and put on virtues that is motivated and empowered by Christ. That also means that if you've wanted to become a Christian, you thought about it, you've looked into it, but you thought that first you really need to get your act together so that you'd be acceptable, so that you could show people that you're worthy of being a Christian— You can just drop that, drop that and become a Christian now. Receive the kindness and compassion of Christ. Receive the fact that you are chosen, holy and beloved in him. And likewise, if you're a Christian who's faking having your act together so that you can be acceptable to other people, you can drop it. You can drop the act and just remember what is already true about you in Christ. In him, you are chosen, holy and beloved. Christ was raised for your justification. He is seated at the right hand of God for your sanctification. He will come again for your glorification. In him you are chosen, holy, and beloved. And as a result, we can put to death our vices and put on our virtues. I just remind you again, it is not a solo sport. We need each other in the body in order to do this. We need the ligament of love that binds us all together in Christ. But the question I'm going to leave you with today is, do you have the guts? Do you have the guts to receive from Christ this gift of his kindness, of his compassion? Do you have the guts to receive it? And do you have the guts to give this kind of compassion, kindness, and love? Let's pray. Lord, help us to let the indicatives empower the imperatives to remember what is true and what to do so that we might grow, shedding the old man and being renewed in your image, that we might walk in a manner worthy until we appear with Christ in glory. 